Church, go and grab your Bibles, if you would, this morning, and uh, open up with me to the book of Colossians. Last couple of months, we have uh, been studying through Colossians together. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 2 this morning. And we bow with me again for a word of prayer before we turn our attention to Scripture. Lord, we're thankful for what we just sang about as a church. We're thankful for what uh, Mandy just sang. That there's no work that we need to add to stand before your throne. We only plead Jesus' life and death sufficient on their own. Our, our standing before you, everything for us, is tied to Jesus and what he has done for us. And so God, I pray that you would free us from the draw to look to other things, to find our hope in other things, that through your word this morning, God, you would just deepen our appreciation for, deepen our faith in Jesus and his work for us. And we pray, pray all of this in his great name. Amen. Again, church, we're in Colossians chapter 2. And uh, if you haven't been here, I'll just quickly remind you of what's going on in Colossians. Paul is writing this letter to a, a relatively young church. So this is a church in modern-day Turkey, the Lycus River Valley. He's writing this letter to these Christians, even though he's never actually been there. Paul has never visited the city of Colossae. Paul's not the one who had first gone there to preach the gospel. Um, he has heard about the work going on in this church from his friend Epaphras. Epaphras was a man who apparently was discipled by Paul. Epaphras had gone to the city of Colossae. Epaphras had preached. And then somewhere later down the line, Epaphras had taken a trip to see Paul while he was a prisoner in Rome. And Epaphras had filled Paul in on the great work that God had been doing there. The gospel had been preached. People had trusted in Jesus. The church was growing. Spiritual fruit was beginning to spring up in the city of Colossae. But, but there was a concern in the middle of all of this good news. And the concern was... There was a new sort of false teaching that was just beginning to seep its way into this valley. And so Paul is writing this letter to this church in part to encourage them, and in part he's writing this to this letter to them to warn them, to fortify them against the false teaching that is coming their way. And I've mentioned several times that the heart of this false teaching, the, the root of the problem is it undermined the sufficiency of of Jesus. It taught a lesser Jesus. It, it taught a diminished Jesus. It taught these people that they needed something other than Jesus. So these false teachers would have said, yes, you need Jesus. But they said, Jesus is just one of the rungs on the ladder. You need Jesus, but then you climb past Jesus. You need Jesus, but then to really grow in the faith, you need more than Jesus. You need something other than Jesus. And so Paul is writing this letter to say to this church, there's nowhere left to climb past Jesus. There's nothing that we need other than Jesus. And so some of the greatest Christological passages in the Bible come in the book of Colossians. Because Paul is writing to these people to remind them of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And so you get phrases like, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You get phrases like, um, all things were made by him and through him and for him. In Jesus, Paul says, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then last time we were together, we looked at Colossians 2.9, where Paul says that in Jesus dwells the fullness of deity bodily. And then look at what he says in verse 10. This is the verse right before what we're going to start with this morning. 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul writes, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Do you see that phrase where Paul says, Christian, you are complete in Christ. That means you are filled in Christ. It's the idea of being filled to the top so that nothing is lacking. And so Paul is pressing home to these Christians that everything you need is yours in Jesus. Okay, so he's now, beginning in verse 11, he's going to elaborate on that. Paul's going to explain a little bit more about who Jesus is and what we have through faith in Christ. So we're going to look at Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15 this morning. Colossians 2, 11 through 15. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, notice all the in hymns or with hymns. Because that's what he's, he's focusing on is what we have through Christ. Paul says, in him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. In which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. Who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He's made alive together with him. Having forgiven you all trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us. Which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way. Having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them in it. Now before we get into the details of this passage. There's a general point I want you to get. That is absolutely crucial to having the right mindset in this passage. And here's, here it is. Did you notice as we read through that. That there are no commands. So there's nothing in that paragraph we just read about anything that you and I need to do. Okay, that's important because if you're a, a bottom line kind of person like I am, there can be a tendency to come to a, a Sunday school class or to come to a service and your main question be, hey, just tell me the bottom line. What is it I need to do? And the first thing you need to hear this morning is there is nothing in this passage about anything we need to do. That's not what Paul's focus is on. Paul's focus is in this passage is entirely on what Jesus has done for us. And think about why he's doing that. Because Paul knows, Paul knows that if they will rest in that, if they will really come to grips into what they have in Jesus, they won't be blown around by all the winds of false doctrine that are starting to blow in Colossae. If they can really rest in what they have in Jesus, they'll be able to resist the urge to chase after the, the newest, flashiest thing that comes on the evangelical radar. Because they'll realize there is no magic bullet. There is no secret thing I'm missing to really know God and have intimacy with God and to stand strong in my faith. Everything we need is ours in Christ. So this is not a passage about anything you need to do. Okay, it's a passage about what we have. It's sort of like, it's like taking a trip to the Grand Canyon and you walk to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look out over this massive scene, there's nothing you need to do when you're standing there. You just need to take it in, right? You, you just need to stand in awe. Well, that's the way these verses are intended to be looked at. We're not reading this and saying, okay, what do I need to do? Paul's just wanting us to walk up to the edge of this Grand Canyon, 
of what we have through faith in Jesus, and he just wants us to marvel at it. Okay, so that's the general picture. But let's work through what Paul says to us here. There are, there are five great realities here that are true for you if you're in Christ. Here's the first one. Number one, in Christ, you have been circumcised. In Christ, you have been circumcised. Look back at verse 11, where Paul says, In him, that's in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now let me ask you a question. Why in the world does Paul bring up circumcision? Because circumcision is a Jewish custom. So was the Colossian church a church made up of Jews? No, Colossae is a Gentile city. So why in the world would these Gentile Christians care about circumcision? Well, probably because the false teachers who were coming into this area... We're telling them that to, to really draw near to God, to really go on with their faith, they needed to start applying the Old Testament law. And of course, at the heart of the Old Testament law was circumcision. Every Jewish male had to be circumcised. It was a sign that you had been cut apart, belonging to God. In fact, in the Old Testament, uncircumcised males weren't allowed in the temple. If you weren't circumcised, you had no hope of drawing near to God. Uncircumcised males weren't included, weren't considered to be part of the covenant community. And so you can see how it would be an easy step for these false teachers to come in and say, hey, if you want to really draw near to God, you need to get circumcised too. If, if you want to really be close to God, if you want to take that next step of intimacy with God, well, you need to start keeping the Old Testament law and you need to apply circumcision. In other words, there's another ceremony. There's something else you need to do. There's another ritual you need to go through to really know the deep things of the faith. And in verse 11, Paul is responding to that by saying, Hey, hey, listen, Christian, you don't need to get circumcised because you've already been circumcised. Paul's saying, you've received the only circumcision that now matters. You've received the spiritual circumcision. What, what really needed to be cut wasn't your foreskin, what really needed to be cut was your heart. And Paul's saying, that's what God did when he saved you. So the only circumcision you need to draw near to God and to have a heart that is soft before God is yours through Jesus. Okay, that's the big picture of verse 11. But look at some of the details. Paul says that this circumcision they have in Jesus is a circumcision made without hands. What does that mean? Paul's saying the only circumcision that matters now is not a circumcision that comes from a surgeon with a scalpel. This is a, a circumcision that only God can do. And it's a circumcision where God cuts our hearts. Well, what is it that is cut away? You know the whole ritual of circumcision is cutting something away. What does God cut away in this spiritual circumcision? Well, the way Paul words it there in verse 11, Paul says that he cuts away the body of the sins of the flesh, or more simply, he cuts away the body of the flesh. What does that mean? That God performs a circumcision through Christ where he cuts away the body of the flesh. Do you remember how Paul uses that word flesh in his, in his writings? What is the flesh according to Paul? Let me just give you one example. Listen to Romans 8. 
how Paul describes the flesh. Romans 8, verses 5 through 7, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, here comes the essence of what the flesh is. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Do you you hear that? The mind of the flesh is hostile to God. So our flesh is, is this controlling impulse in our lives that is hostile to God and refuses to submit to God. In fact, the way Paul says it, he doesn't just say that in our flesh we won't submit to God. Paul says that in our flesh, we cannot submit to God. This is what the flesh is in our hearts. So by nature, our hearts naturally love our sin. Our hearts naturally love ourselves. But our hearts do not naturally love God. We don't want anybody, including God, telling us what to do. So the natural condition of our hearts is cold, calloused, and rebellious. And what Paul is saying is, when God saves you, he does this spiritual circumcision where he cuts away the flesh. The the flesh's controlling impulse over your life is broken when God saves you. The, The flesh is still there, but it's not in the driver's seat anymore. So, so your flesh's mastery over you is cut away. When God saves you through Christ. And that is not something that was done by you. That's something that is done for you. That's something that is done to you through Christ. And so the point that Paul is making, listen now, is that there is no other ritual, there is no other ceremony that needs to be added to your faith in Christ to improve your salvation. There's no other ritual you can do that will now let you draw near to God. Everything you need for your heart to stand right before God is done for you through Jesus. Okay, so through Christ you have been circumcised. Here's the second thing. In Christ you have been baptized. So Paul's going to draw a parallel between this spiritual circumcision and now baptism. Okay, so so just like in the Old Testament, the ritual of circumcision represented some deeper spiritual realities. Paul's going to say that now baptism represents a deeper spiritual reality. Here's what he says. Look at verse 12 where he says, we're buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Paul says we are baptized in Christ. You know the word Baptize is actually a transliteration. It's not a translation of the Greek word. Baptize is a word that means to, to plunge, to dip. And what happens in the Bible is baptize is used, that, that whole picture of being plunged in water is used as a picture of what happens at salvation. At salvation, you are plunged. You are immersed into Jesus. This is how profound our union with Christ is now. When God saved you, he immersed you into Jesus to the point that his death is seen as your death. 
And His resurrection is seen as your resurrection. So God baptized you into Christ when He saved you. So think about why, he, why He's saying this. So again, you can imagine these false teachers saying, Hey, we can show you the path to really be deeply connected to God. Yeah, it's, it's great you got that rudimentary stuff in Jesus. you got the base level. But if you'll follow our teaching, we'll show you how to really be connected to God. And notice the argument that Paul's making. So Paul is saying, okay, let let me get this straight. So Jesus, Colossians 2.9, in Jesus dwells the fullness of God bodily. In other words, Jesus is God. And through faith, we are now immersed into Jesus. So how could we get any closer to Jesus than that? How, How could our bond with Jesus be any tighter than being immersed into him? And notice how this union with Christ is created. Paul says in verse 12 that this union with Christ happens through faith in the working of God. That's it. We trust in the work God did for us through Jesus. We trust in Jesus' righteousness, not our righteousness. We trust in the work Jesus did to make us right before God. And we are baptized into Him. The way Paul's going to say it in chapter 3 is that as a believer, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Isn't that a great picture? You are now hidden with Christ. So, So God's judgment for your sins has already fallen. And in a very real sense, God's judgment for your sins has already fallen on you. It's just that you were hidden in Christ. So you didn't feel the blows, He did. You didn't know the agony of being forsaken by God. He did. You didn't know the horror of being under the darkness of God's judgment. He did. So your life is now hidden in Him. You are joined to Jesus so deeply that His death is counted as your death and His victory is counted as your victory. So Paul's making a point here about our bond, our union with Jesus. That's something that God did for you when he saved you. It cannot be any tighter. You've been immersed, baptized into Christ. And of course, that that is the spiritual reality that the ordinance of baptism now represents. Okay, so the the ordinance of baptism, what we, we do back here, is meant to picture that wonderful truth that Paul just described. That's, that's why we believe that the mode of baptism matters. In other words, we believe the way you baptize is significant because there's a picture that the ordinance of baptism is meant to give. And this is the picture. The picture is that we have identified with Jesus through faith in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the picture of baptism, what he's describing here. That we have identified with Christ. We have put our trust completely in Jesus and his death and resurrection in our place. We're trusting that Jesus was swallowed up, just like we're swallowed up in water. He was swallowed up by the wrath of God as if it was me being swallowed up because he was wearing my robes at the cross. And then his victory is counted as my victory. So I've died to my old life to live a new life of faith in Jesus Christ. So so we believe the picture is broken down if it's not by Immersion. So the ordinance of baptism is, is picturing that. And then we believe this also gives some light on who baptism is for. 
Paul says the spiritual reality behind what we now do as baptism is for those who have faith. This baptism is in faith. The spiritual baptism happens by faith. And so, so we believe that the ordinance of baptism is now for those who are in faith. It's for those who have turned to Jesus and have experienced this union and it's an expression of our faith in Jesus. And that whole picture of immersion, identifying with Jesus, Paul's saying it's giving this spiritual reality, this is what God did when he saved you. He immersed you into Christ. That's the union you now have with him. All right, here's the, the third thing. Number three, in Christ you have been made alive. In Christ, you have been made alive. Look at verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. You, you know, one of the things that you realize as you read the Bible is that you and I would have never figured out God unless God would have told us what he's like. We would have never figured out God on our own. We needed God to tell us who he is, and thankfully he's done that in the Bible. But there's another step to that. What you get in the Bible is not only would we have never figured out God on our own, we would have never figured out ourselves on our own. We would have never understood what we really are if God wouldn't have told us. Now, most people don't believe that. You might can convince people that they couldn't know God on their own, but most people think we know ourselves, right? I don't know God, maybe, but I'm not God. But I know people because I'm a person. I understand my own heart. But the Bible's going to say that we don't know our own hearts. Our thinking is so broken, we wouldn't un understand our own hearts if God didn't tell us what our hearts really are. And thankfully, in the Bible, he's done that. He's told us what the condition of our hearts really is, and it is absolutely devastating. So it's not just that God is far greater than we would ever imagine. It's also that you and I are far worse than we would ever imagine. So what does Paul say our condition is? How does he describe us in that verse we just read? Does he describe us as being misunderstood? Does he describe us as being weak? No, he describes us as being dead. And maybe you read that and think, what in the world do you mean we're dead? We're clearly not dead. We're blinking and we're, we're breathing and we ate breakfast this morning. Dead people don't eat breakfast. What do you mean we're dead? Well, Paul's not describing our physical condition. He's describing our spiritual condition. What does it mean to spiritually be dead? Well, the essence of it, it means to be separated from God. The Bible says God is life. So to be cut off from the God who is life is the essence of being dead. And what does it mean for a body to be dead? Well, a body that's dead has no senses. A dead body can't see. A dead body can't hear. A dead body can't feel. Well, that's what it means to be spiritually dead. It means you don't have spiritual eyes, to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. You don't have spiritual eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You don't have spiritual ears to hear the wonder of the gospel. Think of Paul in 1 Corinthians where he says, We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews that is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks that is foolishness. But to those who are called, Paul says, it's the wisdom of God and the power of God. You see how there's a change that affects how you hear the gospel. 
On our own, we either hear the gospel as an offense or we hear the gospel as foolishness. That is completely unnecessary. It's insignificant. But when God makes your heart alive, you suddenly have ears so you hear in the gospel the wisdom of God and the power of God. And I tell you what else it means to be spiritually dead. It means you don't have taste buds that hunger for spiritual things. And maybe the worst part about being dead is you can't do anything to fix it. Well, if you went to the morgue here in Waycross this afternoon, let's say they had, let's say they had 20 bodies in the freezer there at the morgue, and you went in and you took every defibrillator in the hospital and set it up, you found every ventilator in the hospital and you plugged it in, every kind of life-saving device you could find, you set it up in the morgue, you went home, you slept the night, you went back to the morgue tomorrow morning, guess what you won't find when you get to the morgue? You won't find a single one of those corpses that have come to life. None of those corpses overnight will have jolted themselves back alive, will they? Well, that's what it means to be spiritually dead. It means we don't, we don't have the power to bring ourselves back to life. There's, nothing, there's no amount of communion services you can go through. There's no amount of commentaries you can read. There's, there's no amount of conferences you can attend to make yourself live. But Paul describes it by saying, God made us alive. Meaning God is the actor in this. God is the initiator in this. And he did that for you through Christ. So let me just encourage you this morning. If you have any sort of a spiritual pulse, if you have an appetite for spiritual things, if you still grieve over the remaining sin that's in your life, if you come to a worship service and even though your heart might have been distracted in a hundred ways, your heart wants to rise up and worship to Jesus, you realize that that's not the case because you did the right things this morning or listened to the right podcast on the way to church. If that's true for you, that's true for you because God has made you alive. And Paul's saying this is what happened when God saved you. Through Christ, He has made you alive. You're not sorta alive, and then you need to improve on that. You're not kinda alive, and then if you'll take all the right steps, you'll become really alive. In Christ, you have spiritual life. Here's the fourth thing. In Christ, you have been forgiven. Look at the last phrase of verse 13. This is where I left off at. Paul said, he made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. I don't know that there is a, a better word in this whole paragraph than that one little three-letter word there at the end of that. He has forgiven you, and what's the next word? He has forgiven you all trespasses. I still vividly remember years ago, sitting in my office with a young lady one day who had never heard the gospel before and talking to her about our sin, that it leaves us guilty before God and stained before God and then talking about the gospel, what Christ has done for us, how through Christ we are forgiven before God and how in the middle of that conversation she just burst out into tears. I don't mean just like a tear trickling down her face. I mean she started sobbing where I had to stop talking and give her a minute to compose herself a little bit. And when she finally got composed, she said, 
several years ago, I had an abortion. Could God forgive that? She, she didn't have a hard time thinking that God could forgive the other things, but surely that would be a bridge too far. God couldn't forgive that, could he? I remember late one night sitting with a guy and him looking across the table at me and saying, you don't know what I've done. After what I've done, God could never forgive me. And I wonder if you have anything like that in your life. I wonder if you have anything where, where you hear the gospel and you think, man, that in theory, that whole message of forgiveness is fantastic, and I'm sure it applies to everybody else, but I'm not sure it applies to me after what I've done. Or do you ever have those times in your life where you're all by yourself, you're alone with just you and your thoughts, and in those times, your mind runs back to some of those bigger regrets that you've had in your life. And you get that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach. Am I the only person who ever experiences that? Where all of a sudden, you start feeling, that it might have been something that happened 40 years ago, but the guilt is as fresh as if it happened 40 minutes ago. Do you ever feel that? Do you, do you hear God saying through Paul this morning that in Christ, you have been forgiven all trespasses. That means that thing too. That thing that you couldn't possibly see how God could ever forgive it. In Christ, it is forgiven. Did, did you hear the song that Justin and Mandy and Stephen were playing this morning, the last song that they did? That is a song that has ministered to me for years. And did you hear that opening verse where it says, there is no sin that I have done that has such height or breadth, it can't be washed in Jesus' blood or covered by his death. There is no spot that still remains, no cause to hide my face, for he has stooped to wash me clean and covered me in grace. Brothers and sisters, listen, if your faith is in Christ, you have been forgiven all trespasses. You're not trying to win that. It is so easy, even as Christians, to fall back onto the hamster wheel of I mess up and feeling like I need to do some things to somehow rebalance the scale. You'll never rebalance the scale. Jesus has done it all for us. But how can that be? It, isn't that too good to be true? Look at the next verse. Here's how it can be. Paul continues in verse 14. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But make no mistake about it, there was handwriting against us. That means there was a record of debt that stood against us. I don't know if you've ever thought about it before, but God keeps perfect records. God is an impeccable bookkeeper. And God has record of every single sin you and I have ever committed. You can think of it like your rap sheet before God. There is nothing missing on your rap sheet. Everything's recorded. Every secret selfish thought you have ever had is recorded there. Every twisted motive that has ever been operating in your heart is recorded there. Every time you have failed to do something God told you to do, Every time you have done something God told you not to do, it is recorded there. And Paul says, our record of crimes brings a debt with it. 
And the debt that Paul's talking about here is not money. The debt he's talking about here is punishment. Just like in our legal code, every crime has an appropriate punishment connected to it. So if, if you commit grand theft, the appropriate punishment, the debt associated with that might be three to five years in prison. That is the debt associated with that crime. That's why if you go to trial for multiple charges and you're found guilty of all the charges, they just, they just add up the debt, right? The judge might say it's five years for this and 10 years for that and 15 years. So your total debt is 30 years. Well, what is the debt for each one of our sins against God? The debt for every single one of the sins on that list is death. Because you and I have had the audacity to thumb our noses at the God who made us. That's what our sin is. It is us looking at God who created us and saying, you're not going to tell me what to do. This is, this is R.C. Sproul saying that every sin is an act of divine treason. Every single sin is me reaching for God's crown. Every single sin is me trying to push God off the throne, saying, I'll decide what's right, not you. And so the verdict that comes ringing from heaven for every single one of our sins is death. But Paul says here that forgiveness means that our record of debt is wiped out. Or your translation might say it's cleared, it's obliterated. Our record is cleared. You know, they didn't use the same sort of paper and, and ink in Paul's day that we use today. So what they would write on would be either papyri, reeds that were pressed together, or they would write on animal skin. That was called vellum. They would have real thin animal skin, and that was their paper. And then the ink that they used in Paul's day, it, it wasn't acidic. And what that means is when they wrote, it didn't penetrate down into what they were writing on. So if they wrote on vellum, the ink would just dry and stick to the surface of it. And so what that meant was, if, if vellum was expensive, you didn't just have reams of paper. So if you had vellum that was written on and you needed to reuse it, you, you could apply a little elbow grease and you could scrub it clean. Well, that's the picture that Paul's painting here, is that through Christ, our record of debt that stood against God has been wiped clean. So there's no record of it left. How? Did you notice the last phrase? It was wiped clean by nailing it to the cross. So your record didn't just evaporate into thin air. That long list of charges against you was nailed with Jesus to the cross. You know how the Romans, when they would, when they would execute criminals, would often put a placard, a sign over the head of the criminal so that everybody who went by knew what that person was being crucified for. So it might say murder, it might say treason, or, or whatever. And so when Pilate crucified Jesus, there weren't any legitimate charges. So what did Pilate write on the placard over Jesus' head? You remember he wrote something to mock the religious leaders. He wrote King of the Jews on the placard. Because there was no list of sins to be nailed there with Jesus. But what Paul's saying is, actually there was. You couldn't see it, but it was there. In fact, it was, it was the longest placard that has ever existed. It stretched from the top of the cross to the ground, and it rolled on for miles across the Judean countryside. It was the list of my sins against God. And it was nailed there with Jesus to the cross as he took the punishment for it all. Martin Luther 
who struggled so much with the whole concept of forgiveness and how we have right standing with God and was so deeply aware of his guilt. Luther tells the story of a very vivid dream he had one night where in this dream he was approached by the devil. And the devil came to Luther and he had a scroll in his hand. And the devil unfurled this scroll and as Luther looked at it, it was a list of all of Martin Luther's sins written in Luther's own handwriting. And the devil presented the scroll and he said to Martin Luther, is this yours? Is this true of you? And Luther had to admit, terrified that it was, that those were his sins. He had committed every one of them. And the devil took that scroll and laid it aside. And then he took another scroll and unfurled it. And it was the same thing, another list of sins. And then he did it with another scroll and another scroll until finally Luther said that in his dream, he was just absolutely in the dust. There was nothing he could say. He was clearly guilty. There was no response that he could give. And so he turned away to walk with his head down. And he said that all of a sudden it dawned on him. And he turned back to Satan and said, It's true. Every scroll and every word of it. But make sure you write across the top, The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And Luther went on to write, Quote, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Christian, listen. Your record of sins against God has been taken away. It's been wiped clean. And God doesn't keep a spare copy. Okay, that's the sort of thing that we do, isn't it? We say we forgive, but what we really do is we tuck it away somewhere in our minds to use if we ever need it in an argument. And if anybody ever says something we did wrong, we can say, hey, do you remember when you did that? And it becomes our trump card. We keep copies. But God doesn't keep a copy. Right? Our whole record of wrongs through Christ is wiped clean so that we stand forgiven. By the way, this is where Colossians 2 is where what I think might be one of the greatest verses in all of hymnody comes from. You remember where Horatio Spafford, we're going to sing it, by the way, at the end of the service, where Horatio Spafford says, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. And then here comes Colossians 2. What happened to our sin? Not in part, but the whole. Colossians 2 is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. In Christ, you have been forgiven. One more thing, and we'll be done. Number five, in Christ, your spiritual enemies have been defeated. Look at verse 15. In Christ, your enemies have been defeated. Verse 15, he says, Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, we know from what Paul says later that the false teachers they were dealing with claimed to have access to the spiritual world. They claimed to have encounters with angels. They claimed that they could unlock the spiritual dimension. They could show you how to have real power against evil spirits. But Paul is saying in verse 15, they're too late. That battle has already been fought and won for you by Jesus. He has disarmed. Principalities and powers is just a phrase for evil spirits. He disarmed them. He stripped them. He presented them utterly shamed and humiliated. The picture that Paul's painting here comes from the Roman victory parades. 
So you know in Paul's day, the Roman army was mighty and massive and was constantly fighting battles. But if you were a citizen in Rome, how did you know how the army was doing? How did you know if they were winning great victories? How did you know if they were conquering great enemies? You couldn't read it in the newspaper. You couldn't follow it on social media. So how did you keep track of how great your army was? Well, the only way you could is they would have these huge victory parades. Plutarch, the historian, describes one of those parades where they set up scaffolding throughout the streets of Rome and all the people emptied out to watch this and the victory parade lasted for three days. The first day they had 250-something chariots that rode through town with all the sculptures and all the paintings that they had taken from the Macedonians. The second day, they had just countless wagons with all the weapons and all the armor with shields and helmets and spears and bows and arrows that they rode through town. And then the very last thing they presented in this parade were all the prisoners of war. And they would come through town with shackles tied to the back of one of these chariots. And they would march through town, the king who had been defeated and his servants and his family and They'd be stripped of all their royal attire, march through Rome in broad daylight for everyone to see that they were defeated. They had been utterly humiliated. Well, that's the picture that Paul's painting here in this description. He's saying this is what Jesus has done with Satan and his cohorts. He's triumphed over them. He's put them to shame. How? This is the big surprise is how he did it. He did it at the cross. That's the surprise because a Roman victorious general would come riding in on a chariot. But Paul's saying that our victor came hanging on a cross. That that's where this battle was won. That's where Satan was disarmed. How was Satan disarmed at the cross? You remember what Satan is called in scripture? He's called the accuser of the brethren. Satan is a master at pulling out our record of sins and reminding us of just how miserable and just how guilty we really are. But now through Christ, that record has been wiped clean. So it's like all the bullets have been taken out of Satan's gun. There are no charges left against us. This is why Paul will go on and say in Romans 8, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died, furthermore is risen, who lives to make intercession for us. In other words, there's, if you're in Christ, there's no charge now that will stick against you in God's courtroom. Satan's greatest weapon has been taken away. Not because you figured out the right incantation to use to make the devil flee. But because you are joined to the Savior who crushed him at the cross. So here's what I, I hope for you as we close this morning. What about your record before God? What about the idea that every single sin you have ever committed against God is recorded? God does not keep sloppy books. And maybe I can't see it or the person next to you can't see it, but you feel it. You are deeply aware of your guilt before God this morning. And the message from Paul in Colossians 2 is you don't have to carry it. If you will look to Jesus in faith, your record can be wiped clean. And then here's my hope for you, Christian. You know, it, it's absolutely true, and Paul will get into this as we go on through Colossians. It is absolutely true that there are a million areas in the Christian life that we need to make progress in. Yes, we are told that we need to discipline ourselves for godliness. Absolutely right. But, but don't forget 
this all-important truth. The most important thing we do as Christians is what we did when we became Christians. We look to the cross. We rest in the work that was done for us by Jesus. And we breathe. Yeah, we want to become more like Jesus. What would Jesus do is a fine question to ask. But don't spend so much time asking what would Jesus do that you forget the heart of our faith is what did Jesus do? It is the work that Jesus did for us that we rest in. So, so just take a few minutes to linger there this morning. Take a few minutes before we come to the Lord's table to walk to the edge of this great Grand Canyon and just marvel at what God has done for us through Christ. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes to go to the Lord yourself. And let me just press those two things home. Maybe you're here this morning and God graciously has made you aware of your guilt. Maybe this is the first time in your life you have been aware of your sin against God and your guilt before God. And the point of this message is not just to point you to your guilt, but that through your guilt to point you to Christ, that you would see that in Christ our record against God is wiped clean. There's full forgiveness. Call out to Him for mercy this morning. He is merciful. And then, Christian, take a minute there just to get off the temptation of the hamster wheel. That it's always about us doing and us being and us becoming. And rest in what God has done for us. That's the heart of our faith is that we are trusting in a Savior who has done all of this for us. He's the one who's broken the flesh's rule. He's the one who's joined us to Jesus. He's the one who's made us alive. He's the one who's forgiven us of our sins. He's the one who's conquered our spiritual enemies. So rest in the work. Trust in the work that your Savior has done for you.